0: Welcome to the Empath and the Narcissist podcast, where you regain your sparkle back after narcissistic abuse. I am your host, Raven Scott, your go to narcissist abuse recovery coach. Repeat after me I am awakened, I am the chain breaker, I am the daughter of the earth. I relate to you, empath and your struggles and this show is here to support you and empower you your future self is calling get your free 10 powerful ways to defeat the narcissist and embrace your empath superpowers audio gift in the link in the show notes today As a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. It is not a substitute for professional therapy. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. When I was dreaming of getting out of the narcissistic roller coaster of a relationship I was in, I fantasized living in a bright, tiny condo up on a hill with a view, with a cozy blanket and a good book and a cat. And then I would wake up to the reality of being shamed at my most vulnerable, being forced to listen to how he knew it all and I was dumb, basic, a wannabe, being locked out of my home on an inescapable balcony in only my undergarments. I numbed myself to stop the pain and I reached out to friends for help, but it wasn't until I gained courage to leave and seek therapy that my dark abyss of hopelessness finally started to let in the light I was so longing for. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or overwhelmed, today's sponsor, Better Help is here to help you. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. It allows you to talk to your therapist in a private online environment at your convenience. With a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000-plus therapist network, it will give you access to help that you need that may not be available in your area. Finding a therapist is easy. You just fill out the questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with the therapist in under 48 hours. Everything you share is completely confidential. In therapy, I learned that I wasn't the selfish, lesser person my ex convinced me I was, in my therapy, I was able to get affirmation that I was truly being emotionally and sexually abused. That alone allowed me to release my trauma and grow into the strong coach and mentor that I am today. But I didn't just gain that alone in therapy. I gained my sense of self-autonomy back, my power back, and my confidence back. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com forward slash empath. That's BetterHelp.com forward slash E-M-P-A-T-H in the link in the show notes. This week, we have a special guest, John Verner, and I wanted to give you a trigger alert. This episode is not for the faint of heart, not for those who are easily triggered and identify with being a very strong religious person. We talk about things that you may not want to hear, i.e. Roe v. Wade, i.e. topics relating to how Christians influence and go on the far extreme with pro-life. We talk about how they reacted during COVID and we talked to just a whole bunch about the Bible and Jesus and all that stuff. So I just want to give you that warning there. So don't listen to this episode. If you're highly triggered, you don't want to hear any of that. Tune in to the podcast on Tuesday that I aired. And if you're Curiosity has peaked, and you're not sure if you really feel comfortable anymore in the church, and you're still going, or maybe you need to find a different church. This podcast episode is for you. So, John holds a Bachelor of Arts in Biblical Exposition with an Interdisciplinary in Literature from Moody Bible Institute. He was one of two recipients of the MBI Homiletical Jury Award for Outstanding Preaching in 2016. He has experience as a youth pastor, pastoral intern, academic journal editor, and guest speaker. After studying the Bible, Christian history, and ministry, he set his sights on confronting the problematic nature of white evangelical in the United States. In 2019, he published his first book as a first step in addressing the subtle issues of this complex system. And a giant mega giant, by the way. He hosts a podcast that continues that work under the same title, The Cult of Christianity. You can grab his book at thecultofchristianity.com. Find him on Instagram at thecultofchristianity. And let's get into this conversation. Hi, John. It's so good to have you here. Thank you for being here.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for having me on.
0: I am thrilled. And I think A month ago, I would have been really anxious and afraid to have this conversation with you. But I've done a lot of soul searching. A lot of things have illuminated and come to light. Even just having different guests on my podcast who are Christians. And like, I would get the pit of my stomach drop like, "Uh uh-oh, this doesn't Mm. feel safe. But then they had a very open perspective. So I was like, okay, there are Christians out there that aren't so like controlling and judgmental. But that's mm-hmm. what we're going to get into is this cult of Christianity and how evangelical churches, especially white evangelical churches, control, they contain, and they convert um, just, just like a cult, really. And mm-hmm. it's it's just so extremely frustrating to watch, especially with what's going on in the news with all of the different laws being passed. And I've talked about that a little bit on the podcast, if all of you have been Devoutly listening, um, it's yeah, it's just been frustrating for me. So I'm like, I cannot be silent anymore. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yes, definitely, it is uh, seemingly more relevant now than ever to talk about these things, isn't it? It's it can be very frustrating, especially for those who maybe did grow up in like a cult like environment, like evangelicalism. Uh, some of this stuff makes sense, and it's a very uh weird feeling seeing the things that you were indoctrinated were good things now happen and you see the bad come from them and it's also weird if you weren't in that environment and now you're seeing these things and you're like how is this happening this feels so like uh some of the laws that are being passed feel so outdated like what where is this coming from so it's a it's a very frustrating period of history right now for sure
0: it is but I think everything's been under the rug for so long. So I'm grateful that it's coming out into the light. I mean, I hate how they're, it's happening. I hate how they're fighting back and doing it. But I think a lot more of us are seeing that this just is not okay. And we need to do what we need to do to fight back and to make sure it doesn't take over our country. And we don't turn into like Handmaid's Tale or something like that.
1: <laughs> Correct. Yes. <laughs>
0: Well, I want to ask you about you. It's such a fascinating story because of your background and you, you know, were, had, you know, earned an award. Like I shared in the bio, you were Mm -hmm. a youth pastor and, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, just were completely in it. Like I was almost on that path myself. So Mm -hmm. what, what happened there and share us a little bit about your story.
1: Yeah. What didn't happen there? Um, (laughs) so, uh. (laughs) Yeah, my story is a little a little strange. So I grew up in a very religious family, and uh, definitely was a very skeptical child. wasn't wasn't uh, buying in completely until much older. But uh, <laughs> by much older, I mean eleven in those environments. And so, yeah, at at eleven, I finally told my dad. I was like, "Yeah, I, I accept Jesus. Like, I'll I'll do it." And so I did. And throughout high school, I most of before high school, most of my social life was church. But then in high school, I started making friends through sports, through uh, playing music, that kind of thing, and started realizing I got along with my non-Christian friends better than my Christian friends. And that always really like bothered me. Like, why was that when we supposedly had the truth and they didn't? Why did they seem to be nicer people, better people. So I figured Christianity had just gone off track a little bit. And so I was like, I would like to go be part of the change. And so I felt a call, whatever that means. I (laughs) felt a call to be a pastor. And so at age 17, I started looking around and the best program I could find that had a, a, a undergrad preaching degree was Moody Bible Institute, where I went and got my uh, Bachelor of Arts in Biblical Exposition with uh, Interdisciplinary in Literature. It's a mouthful to say I have a degree in TED Talks. And that's pretty much all it is. And so I, I did I did all the right things. You know, I, I went to Bible college. I got married. I, you know, was was doing what I could do. But then it, after I graduated, I was already kind of burnt out from ministry work and stuff. I was still pretty active in the church I was going to, but I was not ready to take the leap into full-time ministry. But then I got divorced. My whole world started kind of crumbling around me, and the church uh, mistreated me and mistreated my ex. And this was not Mm. the first time I had been mistreated by a church, so it was kind of like the straw that had broke the camel's back i stopped mm-hmm. going to church I, I went back a few times to do some paid gigs playing music because i was broke i was mm-hmm. you know functionally homeless couch surfing uh for a long time uh started to have a flirtatious dance with alcoholism mm-hmm. and really kind of yeah, I know that too well. yeah <laughs> really kind of lost it all and so in that process um fast forwarding through a lot of funny stories i uh was able to procure a van and started doing van life with me and my cat and being a little more introspective and exploring what it meant to be me, what it meant to be spiritual, what this whole God thing was about. And towards the end of that journey, I started to write my book, the cult of Christianity, how churches control, contain and convert. That came out Christmas day of 2019. And, uh, I, I, it did okay, but it nothing spectacular. So I was like, well, let me promote this with a podcast. So in early 2021, I decided to release my podcast, figured I'd have a couple listeners and it'd be no big deal, whatever. But the podcast did uh, exponentially better than the book did. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, I kind of like this. I like this interview style because on my show, I do interview all sorts of different kinds of people, including evangelicals and and people I call cultists. But it's it's all f- friendly, uh, even if it, when it's tense. Um, and so it's been quite the journey for sure. I, I wouldn't have thought I would get where I am even five, six, seven years ago. Uh, I don't think I'd be here. But that is how life works sometimes.
0: That's true. Life is a windy road. It is not a straight path as we think it's going to be, you know, especially when you're young and trying to figure out what you're going to do right out of high school or with guidance or without guidance from your parents. Mm, yeah. Definitely. That's, that's really, I'm, and I think there's two, two points that like stuck out to me when you were sharing your story that I think resonates with consistency is number one is the burnout zone. Like mm. that whole realm, you are always burned out. There's just like, bec- I think because there's so much cover up. And there's so much effort to make sure that everyone's like on the same page and drinking the Kool-Aid, like it can get, it's just really tiring. And then like you say, that kind of mistreatment. So it could just also be like, you know, free labor, like continue to volunteer your butt off and never rest because <laughs> that's how the church <laughs> runs. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, they, the actual mistreatment because of what they believe They have like this justification that they can judge others, even though Jesus directly said, do not judge others, pull the plank out of your eye first. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just an automatic response that they do. Why do you think that that's the case?
1: Mm. This is a great question because... uh it could it it takes it takes books plural and authors <laughs> plural to cover that but uh because it's very
0: yeah
1: it's very layered it's very yeah. entrenched in historical sociological patterns it's very uh there there's some things that are matters of opinion there's some things that are not uh and uh that there's arguments about which is opinion and which is fact so <laughs> it gets pretty uh convoluted but for me personally my opinion is the church hasn't ever been anything other than an authoritative force. It, it's never, it's never been much of anything else. People will want to point to uh, an era where it wasn't that. Whether you know, for Protestants, sometimes it's the Reformation. You know, with Martin Luther, like calling out corruption in the Catholic Church. For Catholics, it's before the East-West Schism, before those Eastern Orthodox people ruined everything. Um,
0: it's always someone else to blame, right? <laughs>
1: that You can always point the finger at someone. And then, mm-hmm. you know, for some people, it's like, well, it's the early church. It's the apostles. Well, there's problems there. The apostles were Jewish and the apostles also disagreed with each other. And it's in the Bible that they disagreed with each other. Um, uh, and then the whole, you
0: like, to- how they pulled all the books together. Like that was a whole scandal in and of itself. Like what you truly are reading and believing as the mm-hmm. gospel, literally, handpicked mm-hmm. by a whole bunch of people you know men actually not people men
1: mm-hmm. yeah coming and, together
0: agreeing and disagreeing
1: and the 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 four gospels matthew mark luke john were all written i mean the earliest one was written 30 years after jesus died so we're talking about like a lot of potential for screw-ups a lot of potential for manipulation so for me it's a very foundational issue um but more when you get away from the foundational issues and just talk about the cultural issues, the church in the U.S. has had extraordinary exceptional privilege from the founding of this country till now. And so they they are a government. Churches are a government. And when you subscribe to that authority, you are subject to their governmental control. And the difference is, because it's a government that transcends time and space you can um you can leave by creating your own time and space elsewhere but they don't want you to know that and so they have to create a pretty simple monolithic way of doing life in order for them to function if they if they get into the nuances of life too much they won't actually be able to control people or contain people or convert others um so for me it's
0: yeah life is too complex Exactly.
1: So for me, it's a very like interwoven thing. It's not an exception to the rule or it's not the church has gone wrong. This is just what the church is to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's at its core. You think all the way back, like all the way back centuries, you know, and it is exactly that. We'll be back in just a moment. Hey, empaths, wanted to take a break and ask if these phrases sound familiar to you. I didn't say that. You're too sensitive. No one will ever believe you. If these phrases are familiar, then you may be dealing with a narcissist. Then my book, Empath and the Narcissist is for you. How to overcome narcissistic abuse and recover from PTSD, codependency, gaslighting and manipulation. This book weaves personal stories, education and healing exercises and is a guide for you to heal from childhood trauma with effective exercises and even a bonus chapter on human design. Also receive another bonus in this book. The free four ways to set powerful boundaries workshop is included in this book. If you wish to feel alive again, and take back the power in your life, then go to www.ravenscott.show forward slash empath and the narcissist. Now back to the show. Just tyrannical controlling force that is full of greed. Yeah. And it, it actually was the center focal point of certain monarchies. And that was how they justified, right? I am divinely appointed here by God. And that itself is a manipulation. And we see, oh, that's obvious. But it continued in all of the Mm -hmm. propaganda and all of the culture and everything all the way through with the founding of our nation, which Mm -hmm. already was founded with narcissism. And like men thinking it was okay to own other other men and women and children and do horrific things to them that even animal rights activists now would be horrified by like just right. horrible things right and that's narcissism at its core it's like ignoring the blatant obvious abuse pointing the mm-hmm. finger always blaming someone else and then judging others right that whole gaslighting of well you're the one that's the sinner or you're the one that needs to you know bring your issues to the altar because I'm following whatever book you know whatever bible verse that they pull out and throw at you that one drives me insane the whole bible verse usage gaslighting
1: yeah it's very common biblical gaslighting and it's also um yeah narcissism is an interesting word because narcissism is usually like an individual but exceptionalism is basically group narcissism I mean it's the same the same principle um you know, and and I like to think about you know I'm sure you you know the the story of Narcissus the the tragedy where he the, the where we get the word where he everyone was falling in love with him. This is Greek mythology. Everyone was falling in love with him, but he wasn't interested till he comes across a pool. Then he sees his own reflection and he can't look away. And it's actually it is tragic because he can't look away, so he doesn't eat. Like he just stays by the pool. He doesn't sleep. He just can't stop looking at himself. And he doesn't want to drink the water that's right in front of him because it would disturb the image, uh, the reflection he sees of himself. And so, I, I had a job where I worked with diagnosed narcissists and was trained how to interact with them. Um, and it, and I think when narcissists, <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts about it. Um, Granted, so my my context, I was working with what would, it's a little problematic phrasing, but what we would call it low functioning narcissism, which basically just means if they're trying to manipulate you, you'll spot it. You don't have to be a genius. You can be like, I see you trying to manipulate me. So narcissism in general, the way people describe it is a lack of empathy, which is true. It's a literal inability to be empathetic. Now that's not to say that if someone is being narcissistic or was narcissistic, they will always be narcissistic. Um, it's not a permanent stamp on so- who someone is, even if they do have the disorder and are, are diagnosed. And there's a slight nuance between like narcissism and sociopathy. Um, sociopaths usually it's it's diagnosed from birth usually. Um, you can develop it
0: unless they don't go to therapy. Yeah, you, it, it can, <laughs> and they don't get diagnosed.
1: It can be developed, um, and it can be a result of trauma. Uh, but in general, sociopathy is is like a chemical imbalance, more or less. Um, and but but both sociopaths and narcissists can learn empathy. It's just they have to learn it. <laughs> it's not innate. But a hundred percent, maybe one exception. But a hundred percent of the narcissists and sociopaths I worked with were abused, uh, like every single one of them. Um,
0: they themselves were abused?
1: Correct, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it is very, very rare that there was an abuse. And of course, that's not to excuse any behavior or like, you know, uh, action or belief or whatever they've done, but there's usually abuse. Right. And so what what you learn about empathy when you <laughs> see narcissists and sociopaths every day when you clock in uh, is that, it's not um, it, it's 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 not sensitivity. I think we confuse those words sometimes. Uh, they're both important so I had to work on this in therapy. I, I never related <laughs> well to the word empathy because I've heard that word mm-hmm. misused and abused sometimes. And so my therapist was like, mm-hmm. well you're a very sensitive person. you're not necessarily an empathetic mm-hmm. person but you're a very sensitive person and so sensitive is a much less emotionally charged word because, you can be a sensitive person and then do something bad or do something good, right? Like some people are sensitive and then they are more on the narcissistic end where they make it all about them and yada yada. And some people are sensitive and use right. it as a, as a starting point for understanding others. So that's more of like the, that personality trait. Empathy actually is unique to each person. There's not like a monolithic way to be empathetic. Different people will learn it. What empathy, and this is a terrible way to do a definition, but what empathy is, is it's the opposite of apathy, where you just have no concern. And apathy is the starting point of sociopathy and narcissism. It's just a lack Mm -hmm. of care. And that Mm -hmm. lack of care can be because you were beaten down, because of abuse, because of this... Or it can be you were a spoiled brat and never had to care about anyone else. It can look very different to different people. So the only reason I bring all that up is in the context of church. I think churches can be really narcissistic because they've never had to care for other people because they've been powerful or because a lot of the people who go to church are very broken, are very vulnerable, have been in really tough spots, and the church is giving them a a way out, a solution that is, frankly, easier than just living your life. And so the the lack of empathy comes from a lack of practicing empathy, because it's a practice. It's not like a, a God-given gift that you can just turn on or turn off. It, it takes a lot of work to be very empathetic. And I can personally attest that when I was a Christian, I was not a very empathetic person. Um, I was borderline sociopathic tendencies with how I was treating my spouse. I was gaslighting them. Um, You know, do, doing stuff like that and it's very easy in those environments and I think that's how it happens. Um, so that's my little spiel on narcissism and empathy I figured I I'd that. talk about.
0: I love that. I love that. No, I love that. Well, I mean, this podcast is called Empaths and the Narcissists. So I we just had another guest on talking about the difference between empath and empathy. Mm. Episode 79 with Jennifer Moore. Mm. And I think it's really important to focus in on that because you get these sound bits nowadays. And you're like, oh yeah, that's me. You know, right. oh, that's an empath. Oh, that's empathy. But
1: identity shopping. Yes. Yeah. And
0: then you pick it out, you're like that, that, that. And you know, caution to all the listeners, that's also what narcissists do. They mm. pick out what they want to be and they identify. So make sure you're unearthing things in your shadow and you're you're sitting with it and you're you're looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, Wow. And sometimes the mirror is the narcissist, right, in front of your face who's mirroring all of this stuff to you. Yeah. You know, um, and mirroring all of those holes that you're lacking in your emotional intelligence and self-development.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, well put, yes.
0: Yeah, it's... Um, I was going to point back to this whole, like, empathy with the church.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think you're right. I think there is no... I don't even know if there's room for empathy because they've got to follow all these rules, mm. right? Especially the very extremist. And I'm not, I'm not blanket stating all Christians. I'm we're really sure. focusing in on the extremist, you know, evangelicals whom you are drinking the Kool-Aid and your other Christian friends are like, why are you doing that? Mm. You're like, because this is what I'm supposed to like, this is, you're just supposed to do it. Mm-hmm. And when you grow up and you live and you're trained and you know, you're, you're full in to the church culture you don't you know there's no time for empathy there's no time for self-reflection because you have to make sure you're following the rules you have to make sure everyone around you is following the rules so that you can be in the good graces of whomever you're pleasing outside of yourself really
1: Definitely. And, you know, in in most church contexts, even I would say beyond evangelicalism, but it's really pounded home in in evangelicalism, is this idea that love is obedience, which is a a really bad Hmm. lesson to learn. Um, It'll affect all of your relationships, um, especially when you mix it in with something like patriarchy. One of the things I've talked about is how, um, you know, Yes, I mean, women in most church contexts in the us, not all but most are taught to obey their husbands, and that creates conflict in two ways. one, you gross, that's horrible, not a healthy starting point for a relationship and very misogynistic. but two yeah. if if um if a man and in their context all marriages are heterosexual, so that's problematic already. but in their context, right. Uh, the man is, is expecting to be obeyed and won't feel loved if he's not obeyed. And that's its own, like, Mm -hmm. uh, starting point for all sorts of trauma and uh, misunderstandings and bad self image issues and acting out and all sorts of other bad behaviors. So the the, the main thing, Mm -hmm. I think, if we want to be clinical about it, Um, it's Messiah complexes that's, and, and obviously the Mm -hmm. word Messiah complex, of course you can relate it to Christianity because it's based on a guy who claimed to be a Messiah and, uh, you know, martyrdom complex, again, this whole mythology that there were all these martyrs at the beginning of Christianity. Most of the accounts are not verified and most of it is just legend and not historical fact. Um, so, well, so
0: he himself—it doesn't even matter if any of the apostles were martyred. It's like they always just focus on Jesus being the martyr and him, right. you know, rising again.
1: Right, and he probably was crucified. You know, based on the history I've read, it seems like he was. Um, a, but a
0: lot of people were crucified. Yeah. But
1: a lot of people were exactly, and you know, it. it you know, the, the the problem is with the Messiah complex. You automatically have to accept a rigid category of right or wrong. And you have to assume in order to be right, I must make myself less. I mean, that's also part of the doctrine. You have to be willing to die for something that's uncertain, which is also like a pretty huge demand of people. Anytime that happens, I mean, it means that some people are more right and some people are wrong. So it's ranking people and it's creating hierarchies. And so empathizing with someone else becomes fake you know it's dishonest you're pretending to listen but you're never able to depart from your certainty so you can't have empathy Mm -hmm. and and be in that kind of culture
0: yeah oh my gosh so many points I'm like absolutely 100% resonating and to the last point about that fake empathy I was going to bring that up earlier and I'm so glad you brought it up it's <clears throat> fake empathy just so that they can find that opening spot in the conversation to prove their point mm. to make their bible verse point to convince you to get back on the ship like don't leave the ship this is the ship and this ship is right because if this ship is wrong then the consequence is hell essentially mm. in right. their mind they've just been trained and conditioned Right. It's it's a survive or not kind of a mental scenario.
1: It's almost as if it exploits whatever real empathy could be there, right? Like yeah. it, obviously like if I believe there's heaven and hell and everyone's going to one of them, like yes, the most loving thing I could do under that belief is try to get as many people to not suffer forever. Like and so that's where that messiah complex comes in. Is you feel like you have to save the world. That is the feel. That is what is on your shoulders. In order to be a loving person, you have to try to save the world, knowing you won't be able to do it, but trying to your hardest. So, um, you know, they're
0: don't you think that's arrogant? Don't you think that's like that's assuming that your belief and your mindset is the one and only way? Which I know that's what they think because that's what the church tells them that's what the bible tells them that's just what they believe
1: yes it 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 definitely breeds arrogance even if it doesn't start there eventually it becomes that because you know the ability to save people from hell is intrinsically tied to your spiritual worth i mean that so so there is no real separation of you don't feel like you're doing it for you when you're you know going to a third world country to take a picture with a (laughs) kid, or whatever they think is love, you know, that you don't feel like you're doing anything wrong, because you feel like you're doing something really important. So for them, empathy ends up meaning finding ways to trick people into thinking you love them, without loving them in a way that disobeys the dogma that you believe. And all of this is you just hope they make it to heaven. I mean, that's the only way to love someone. And that that will affect you know marriages or relationships because ultimately every conflict with your spouse doesn't matter because all that matters is that you both get into heaven all your interactions with your family don't matter because all that matters is your kids or your parents get into heaven or your cousins or whatever it may be all of these things end up having to fit on this grid and when you sit back and you're out of it you look and you like go how horrible how could anyone believe this you know this is so terrible but when you're in it, it is it, it feels very euphoric because your life has been simplified to the point where it makes sense, where you can just wake up and go, mm-hmm. this is who I am. I don't have to ask hard questions. I don't have to interact with people who are different than me. I will have some resources at my disposal, at least in the US. Christians here have have resources that other communities do not. A lot of them have routine because they weekly get to know they'll see people, which especially, you know, the, the pandemic, I mean, we all long for like some of that kind of social routine as well as social media making us more disconnected church offers a solution but to that need Most of them
0: still went yeah most of them, well, still most went of them had and didn't to and didn't think get back i
1: think back it's back. terrible and and it almost killed my dad but like it, it's a terrible thing mm. but like that's life for them because it's it's given them something to just have hope in is this hope of heaven and these people around here are giving you a community one of the hardest things when people leave christianity is missing that community the problem is the community was an illusion from the very beginning. It was fake. It wasn't real. When the chips are down, if you stray too far from orthodoxy or the dogma, you're done. You don't count anymore. Um, and so yeah, it's it's all very true. fake. Yeah. Oh
0: my god, so true. It's so sad. Yeah. It's, and I think that's why it's so pertinent to this podcast is because, like you say, narcissism is typically an individualistic. Disorder, But it has, like I've talked about before, it's seeped into, it always has actually been in our systems. It's always been in our religions and our cultures. And I mean, why else would they justify finding a new new land Mm -hmm. and strategically giving sickness to the Native people here taking care of the land, forcing them off their land? doing uh, forcing them I mean even up in northern Canada forcing the children away from their families into a Christian school that was highly abusive like all of this stuff I go how how do you justify that well all of this is under this umbrella of like well it's for the greater good for for God for and it's it's just all very narcissistic. I can't like I just get all like I can't. My brain starts to get all muddled cuz I get so upset about it. I'm like don't it's you very see? not you see?
1: It's very upsetting from a historical standpoint and it's upsetting the the willful ignorance, the gaslighting, the the denial of of what yeah. it's been. Um you know, and like people wonder, right, when they see a church like Westboro who has like, you know, a terrible website name I won't even say on air and like, you know, it's just this <laughs> horrible like hate group But what's crazy is they think they're loving people and that's what gets like Mm. messy about it and what makes it hard because the easy thing to do when you leave a cult is say that cult is terrible. They're brainwashing people and they should all, you know, just go F themselves and like (laughs) like, this is the worst thing ever. And that's 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 usually part of the process. I, I do plenty of that on my own, but I think that's like, well, they're still human. And one of the hardest lessons I learned, but the biggest lesson I learned when I worked with diagnosed narcissists and sociopaths was they were human. And it stretched my empathy. Like, can I empathize with someone who has none? And the answer is yes. Um, and it's difficult and you can't do it to a point where it wrecks you too much, which I did, you know, I worked 60 hours. You have
0: have boundaries with your empathy.
1: Yeah. When you, you know, I worked 60 hours. I joke that like, I mean, my marriage had a million problems, but my job didn't help any of them. Um, and, uh, yeah. So like one thing to note, I guess, is narcissists don't want other people to suffer. They just don't care that they're suffering or they don't see that they're suffering it's like a blind spot it's not you know it's really easy Mm -hmm. to go narcissists were like the are villains right like (laughs) like they're scheming or something most of the time that's not true it's it's actually just like again a, a series of events that's led them to a mental state where they it's a blind spot they can't even see it so it's very difficult to talk to someone like that and it's not for everyone but I think it is important yeah. that some people who are able, who are maybe less emotionally invested, can get to those people because most narcissists won't go to therapy. Um, they're on their own; they'll have to be convinced. I had to be convinced when I was, uh, you know, in a narcissistic mindset. Um, I was very resistant to therapy, um, and so you know, it takes some people caring about people who. It's really. It, Loving the un- unlovable is what I call it I mean it's it's they're not yeah. fun to be around but unfortunately and we see this politically with polarization right now if you stop talking to the other side uh both sides get worse they don't get better and that I think that's true with narcissism and empathy too but there is a way to do it and you can't you kind of have to I, I'm allowed to cuss on this podcast right yeah okay yeah take no shit. You know, you have to love, but take no shit, and and that's that's a lot of what I think interacting with narcissists and sociopaths looks like, especially Christian ones, which is what I do the most. Is saying, look, I'm not I'm not expecting you to hate me. I'm expecting you to not know you're hating me, and, and that's kind of an easier position to start from.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Absolutely, but then also you get the um you get the reverse, right? We mm-hmm. talk a lot about like gray rocking and going no contact with narcissists just for your own mental health so you can heal first like you said you have to be strong with boundaries but then like what i've experienced in my life with the you know christian narcissists specifically my personal family is i will put up a boundary and then it'll be radio silence Mm. because they don't know how to relate to me now with this new boundary and they take it personal
1: absolutely offended by it yeah you're... and there's
0: no further conversation like i don't i don't know how to open up a conversation with them now like i'm not going to put myself in that toxic scenario where they're, they're sitting you know stewing on. right you, know,
1: you definitely have to get to a point where you understand it's not your responsibility it's just like it's it to to talk to them necessarily um it's more a a willingness if they if they're able to stay in bounds so to speak
0: yeah yeah
1: because uh yeah i was just
0: gonna say like that compassion i was gonna say like have have do the work within yourself to have the compassion for whenever your paths cross again or they reach out and they're in a kind of a better state and they've forgotten about their personal offense yeah (laughs) and then you're like
1: yeah well and i i Take an approach. Um, I don't talk about my family stuff uh, on podcasts too often, just because out of respect for them. I'm like, I don't need to drag you through the mud too much. They're they're good people for the most part, so <laughs> I, I try to, try to nice of you. yeah, try to be nice about it. But I will say, like one of the things I think that has helped us be a functional family that most of us talk to each other is we we know what to not talk about. Um, and and with family, that can be very huge is just knowing what not to talk about. And it, everyone has to be on board. You know, they, if there's one person who just keeps bringing something up, sometimes you have to say, hey, like, no, no stop bringing that up. But uh, I'm very thankful my parents raised three kids who are all very independently minded, who, you know, are able to be very three to very different people. I'm very lucky in that regard and, and still function, you know, person to person. It's harder with relationships. I I think, you know, most of the time if there's any kind of narcissism, abuse in in a in a romantic relationship, usually it's going to have to end with a no contact just cuz the emotions are too high to think clearly, to to be to, something can't produce health, you know, if it's uh if it's only produced unhealth. On <laughs> so, you yeah. know, you can't live in a dream world where something will get patched up when it won't. Yeah.
0: Well, and that's kind of normal, even without a narcissist. Like, when you break up with someone, you don't like, usually, you don't continue to be friends with them because that's kind of a blurry line and it becomes awkward for, let's say, whomever you're with in the future. So, yeah. Yeah. With a narcissist. It'll, it'll
1: vary person to person, but absolutely. Like, in general, you shouldn't have to. But, but all that goes back to what you were saying with this idea of just like, you know, you can't put the burden on yourself to like, change someone else like that's that's not ever going to (laughs) happen like it's not on you to change someone else
0: and that's really what they're trying to do and so when you do it on your side of the fence you're stooping to their level and like back to the whole this nation is divided Yeah. at the you know it's good that we're not trying to bring each other over to each other's fence like our side of the fence and we're just not talking about it but at the same time it's just it's just at the core
1: Well, we don't know how to communicate right now, right? Because boundaries have been pushed for so long. It's it's to the point where it's kind of we have to have no contact with certain kinds of ideologies, which I totally understand. I just think if you are able and you're you're the kind of person who can have a conversation like, you know, I like to think I'm the kind of person who could have a conversation with a white nationalist, but I could never be friends with one. And like, that's kind of like a, a, a weird way to think about it. But those are the kind of conversations we're going to have to start having, <laughs> because that's where we're getting. And it's not getting better by ignoring white nationalism. And yeah. so, so it's very difficult. But I think, you know, I call Christianity a cult for a living. And, uh, you know, I get I used to get more hate mail than I do now because at first people were shocked and you know whatever and they're like wait you studied to be a pastor how could you blah 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 um okay. there's less and less but i'm the one actually reaching to the other side and getting shut down more often um and and the reason i'm bothering to reach out and talk about this because trust me there's days where i'm like i'm so sick of talking about christianity i left years ago it would be nice to just pretend it doesn't exist But the reason I do is because it's affecting culture in ways that now everyone is seeing. Um, And, you know, I was able to see back in 2015, you know, pre-Trump era, I could see like the stage being set for what was going to happen. And yeah, again, I I just have to recognize where I was flawed when I was a Christian and understand that I never wanted anyone to suffer. That was even at my most bigoted, at my most misogynist, at my most horrible ideology indoctrination mindset at, at all of that I wasn't that I wanted people to suffer and I have to remember that when I'm interacting with people who cause suffering it's it's not the That's intent true. it's just they don't see it it's a blind spot and you have to talk them through it
0: yeah, yeah. like you said the story about Narcissus is they're just staring at their idea yeah. in the pond and not turning their head to see how it's affecting other people right or like i always say like i'm not gonna watch the news i'm gonna stick with my beliefs about christianity and not see how it's affecting other people you know mm-hmm. the marginalized yeah. the, the the weak the people who jesus actually talked to mm-hmm. and cared about the irony about that it's like they don't care yeah. about those people anymore they only care about their own so they're sticking their head in the sand mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it is important to be able to have some of those conversations. Otherwise, their heads will always be stuck in the sand. Yeah. And you're right. They don't want people to suffer. That's why they believe what they believe. Right. But they just don't see that they're, let's say, like, you know, a woman who's drank the Kool-Aid. She's obeying her husband. Mm -hmm. She's highly involved in the church. She's pro-life. She has a huge blind spot for how detrimental that can be to a 10 year old who's been accosted Mm -hmm. without consent to you know uh, a immigrant who has no more space or money for children like all these different things like they're just like well that's okay Mm -hmm. because that's you know god's murder so i'm just gonna stick with it
1: right which that one is especially fascinating because of how pro-life movement is so young and so clearly a like a red herring for uh segregation proponents in the 60s like it's it's well documented and and anyone can google and find it out pretty quickly exactly how that went down but yes so when you this is something people ask me about a lot is this idea of so here's jesus and here's christians what happened yeah i think many things happened but i think one of the biggest things to understand about jesus is i don't think personally this is this is where we're in opinion territory um, right. I don't think Jesus claimed to be God. I don't actually think that was on the table until after he died. When you make a good human being God, bad things happen. <laughs> because when you sure. <laughs> when you say any person is perfect, uh you make them the standard. Well, Jesus a Jewish carpenter Uh, Who wanted to be a radical apocalyptic messiah in Judaism. When you make him the standard and you have a bunch of white people who are not familiar with Judaism, who are not familiar with (laughs) Middle Eastern culture, who are not familiar with most basic historical facts based on just a terrible education system in the U.S., you're going to run into a lot of problems and so
0: it's ironically horrifying (laughs) yeah so
1: i i like jesus as a character you know i I do i think i think all the things that people say about him about caring for the oppressed um is valid and i i think there's like a lot of obviously he inspired something so i think there was a indefinable quality about jesus that's very appealing and I think it makes sense that he is the most famous human in all of history. It, it, it totally makes sense. But when it feels like a disconnect, um, I th- I think it's honestly because there was a disconnect between him and his apostles. Pretty obviously, so uh, if you if you read the Bible. There was yeah,
0: it's very much in there. Like they argued, and he was like, "Chill out, guys. Chill out. Stop. Stop. You know, like putting them in their place." Well, he argued. They
1: were always misconstrued. He argued with his religious leaders, and then he argued with the people following him. I mean he he was an argumentative fella, and like, (laughs) and so I don't I don't know how you can make a un uh, a palatable order system out of a chaotic human. there's there's just too much disconnect i don't think jesus was for organized religion in any kind of way
0: no he hated the pharisees yeah he was absolutely
1: yeah he hated laws he hated rules i mean like there there's there and and that's that's what is reported about him i mean who's to say Uh, everything that's reported about him is even accurate, but they
0: made it up just to make their own form of religion. They wanted out of his movement,
1: right? Exactly. Out of the energy he had garnered. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot there. But I, I think when you fast forward all the way, what draws Christians to Christianity is the redemption story that no matter how broken you are, you can be made whole again. I mean, what a great message, right? Like that is the part that speaks to everyone that hooks you in. Because that message is important, that redemption arc message is a very, very important message, and we're missing that message uh, in broader society in a lot of ways. So, so it's very appealing, and people do get hooked in that way. If you know, a lot of Christians, the the movement, based on what I'm reading now, seems to be less people who are indoctrinated are attaching to Christianity. More people are coming to Christianity later in life. Because they do feel alone and isolated and they're offering community and the hope that you can be made whole again after you're broken. And no one else is really mm-hmm. selling that right now. And so, uh, you know, it, the reason that's important to bring up is just understand that Christians aren't going to Christianity to become nationalist. <laughs> they're not going to Christianity to become bigots. <laughs> that's not the motivating factors
0: they already were. There's just, you know, magnifying stuff. Well, like there, yes, that's that's
1: one one era. It's like, how can I be a good person and have these bad views? Here's the cover. That's certainly one type of person. But there's also another type yeah. that just kind of goes with the flow because because that story is so unbreakably important to who they are, to their identity, to know that I am a Christian, so I will be loved someday because they don't believe they can be loved mm-hmm. yet. And like that, that's sad. And it, and it's something we need to do better as, as the ones out here trying to get people out of the cult of telling them you're worth love now. I mean, one of the jokes I've said on my podcast before is it's crazy that Christianity was hyping up that someday I will be forgiven for Jesus. And then you go to one therapy session and you're like, Oh, this guy does it too. Like it, 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 it's, it's the, the, the whole essence of their message is here. Now you don't have to like subscribe and, and, give lifelong dedication and servitude to uh, an ambiguous uncertain ideology you can just look at the people around you have empathy for them and learn together and no it won't be perfect it'll get ugly and uncomfortable and horrible stories will ensue but they happen anyways so you might as well not be in a cult <laughs> while you're trying to find love
0: as she get that's just like fog on top of other fog you've got your ancestral trauma you've got your conditioning you've got now you've got this whole religious ideology it's like layer after layer and i think when you said that this and it goes back to that messaic, like Mm. messiah complex yeah like thank you yes the messiah complex is like this this has finally has my answer Mm. and that's the whole danger of a cult or even a narcissist going to someone who is your saver is going to lead you down a road of heartbreak yeah it's not going to be the end all be all you know everything that you need is within you already Mm -hmm. and that's always what i talk about so yeah you may need to talk to a therapist a coach to figure it out to uncover some of those layers of the fog but relying on a religion like you said that holds you to this lifelong servitude just for the hope that heaven is someday going to happen. Like, heaven is now. Heaven is here. Your experience you have now mm-hmm. is what you get. It's the present.
1: Yeah. And hell is here, too. You know, like, I, I get that, like, it's it sucks. Like, I I, I get the, the euphoria of Christianity. I miss it sometimes. I miss playing worship music and <laughs> worshiping this, you know, image in my head that i had construed based on theological things i had studied i miss it it was fun it felt good you know i i used to cry a lot more cathartically when i was a christian and now i cry in very uncathartic ways so you know like i get i get missing it and i get wanting it um and, it, and a, a lot of times this can come off as condescending because of how the programming of Christianity, like, Oh, I miss you. You know, I get it. You just do this to feel good. It's like, no, I understand it's deep. I understand it's identity. I understand there's like a, I understand, I have Christian friends who I'm like, y'all are great people. Like, it's cool. You're chill. I like you. We can talk and hang out, but you're part of a cult. Like the reason I cho- choose that word, it, it was very thought through and intentional because when I confront Christians and call it a cult, you know, they'll go, well, what's a cult or what's a Christian? And, you know, try to uh, make me define myself to death. But um, what, what I, yeah. But what I try to do with that word is just say, well, what do you, what is a cult to you? You know, turn it back a little bit. And it'd be like, well, what images conjure in your mind? And they tell me, and I'm like, well, how is that different from what you believe? You know, tell me the differences. Um, because what I've found is most Christians actually don't argue the point. They go that the, what they're forced to say at the end of the day is, well, I'm just part of the right cult. I mean, that's essentially what they have to say. They, they don't really have a way to say they're not one. Um, and I think that's really important to highlight because if they know that, then they have freedom they, to, to choose, make that choice. Okay. You choose to be part of that cult. That's good. But we have to have that discussion first. Because if we have discussions about religion or like spirituality, things will get really muddy really quickly. Um, we need to keep the conversation focused on the actual hierarchies that churches have created, the actual abuse that has happened, and the material means we've seen exploited—the material money in in churches' accounts, the tax exemptions, the the legal developments, the sociological developments, the history of Christianity. Those are the things we actually have to talk about. We can't keep talking in terms of ideals and theology and like trying to find God, or else we we'll just be talking. Talking in circles all day.
0: Mm. Yeah, Uh, so many circles. Yeah, it's it's because everyone so drink this Kool Aid so much they've been taught how to talk about it to defend themselves, and they latch their ego and identity to it. It's of course, if you go down that road, you're just going to be gaslit and you're going to get confused and turn in circles. And maybe you're listening and kind of confused and maybe turned in circles and wondering is, you know, is my church a cult? And you would say, well, no, because they're not like, we're not Mormon. I remember my dad used to always say that growing up. I'm not Mormon. It's like, I'm actually, our ancestors were Mormon. And I just learned that like last year, but he (laughs) adamantly denied it because Mormonism is different than Christianity. And
1: and ironically,
0: it's not really, it's still just a different type of cult. So you may be thinking, well, you know, we, we believe in Jesus, all this stuff. And it's like, it's just your journey to, think about yeah. we're just here talking to you to kind of open your eyes just like if we're talking to you maybe also you're in a narcissistic relationship and all you can focus right now is your survival mode and figuring out if this person's healthy for you or not mm-hmm. all of the things we talked about apply to that too because it's just a bigger system absolutely that's amplified
1: usually what i'll say to someone who's who's kind of in that stuck state you know because if you've listened this far and you're disarmed at all you know um thanks for listening you know like i i understand it takes it takes a lot to like let go of some of that stuff but if you've gotten that far the the only recommendation i have is i'm like just just try stop going to church for a month just see what happens you know and if you miss it and you want to go back that's fine go ahead back but just see what happens just if you've never done that in your life or at least in your christian life of just not going to church with no explanation see how many people check up on you and what the checkups are like if they do yeah uh you know see how your men-
0: manipulative they are see
1: how your mental health <laughs> is on sunday see if you don't dread getting up and you know, waking up because that was a feeling I had almost my entire Christian life was dreading Sunday morning. See if that goes away. You know, Mm -hmm. those are the kind of things you can just explore for yourself. I'm never going to tell someone you have to stop being a Christian. That's not my business. That's your business. But if you're curious about the effects a cult like Christianity can have on you, that, that that's just a simple experiment you can do for your own personal wanderings.
0: That's a perfect experiment. Thank you for offering that to all of the listeners. I think that's important. Yeah. Yeah, you will soon see. And you're going to be doing it as an experiment. You're not going to be doing it as like a rebel because then right. you'll feel pulled back in. It's like, I'm just curious. Yeah, just see what
1: this. happens because nothing might. See. You might be fine. They might go, oh, that's okay. I need to take time off from church too. You might have a cool church like that. See what happens. Maybe they're yeah. like that.
0: Yeah, that's a really good litmus test, right? Yeah. And, and anything any social interaction you're in yeah yeah just, <laughs> hey i just need to take a break from our relationship yeah hey i need to take a break from going to church
1: yeah yeah exactly it's it's really shouldn't be a big deal and if it becomes a big deal that's worth exploring
0: so one final question i want to ask you is so many people say like when you do leave the church or take a break what would you say to a Christian who would quote unquote say like there are loads of people who make mistakes in the church? They'll say to you or people are imperfect or we're all sinners and that's why we are all there in the first place. And that's not really a reason to walk away.
1: So it's very common for Christians who are close to someone who has left their little cult of Christianity to try to figure out what their spirituality is and finagle their way back in. You know, they'll make excuses like, well, the church is not a perfect place. People aren't imperfect. You know, there's no, don't walk away from Jesus just because you've been hurt. And honestly, to that, I say the hurt was the people, but so is the church. It's all the people. It's all the system. It's all the cult. There is nothing beyond what I'm seeing. That's what I would say. But if there is something beyond, then that something beyond will understand why I left and side with me. And if it wouldn't side with me, then I don't want to have anything to do with it.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, John, for being here. It was an absolute pleasure. I appreciate you so much.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So thank you so much.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Don't forget that I do also offer coaching sessions for you specifically on recovering and healing from narcissistic abuse. I'm taking one-on-one coaching clients. I have four spots left. So contact me through the link in the show notes to grab your coaching sessions today. And remember everybody, always keep your unique light shining. Madvi is helping people release emotional baggage, break negative patterns and find root causes with the emotional and body code. She believes the healing possibilities of the body code and emotion code are limitless. And I can highly attest to this while working with her myself. I highly recommend connecting with Madvi Mathur. Reach out to her in the show notes today and get your free emotion code inquiry consultation today. Visit www madvi.ca. That's M-A-D-H-V-I dot C-A. And the link will be in the show notes.